0: This is Your Bird Story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. This season is funded by the Voice for Nature Foundation. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Siemens. I'm very excited to be speaking with today's guest, Marina Ritchie, the author of Halcyon Journey. And Marina, welcome. Thank you, Georgia. I'm delighted to be on your show today. To orient our listeners, would you mind introducing yourself and giving us a brief natural history of the Kingfisher? Sure. So I'm Marina Ritchie.
1: I live in Bend, Oregon right now. I've been here since 2016, and before that, I spent several decades in Missoula, Montana, where much of my book about the Delta Kingfisher does take place. And before that, I was in Oregon, so this is a return to the state. And I have spent my career as a writer and nature writer, and also on the side, and as much as I can as paid work, I'm an environmental advocate. I've always wanted to be involved in saving open spaces and cities and towns and outside and other ways of doing my part for wilderness. So I combine the two often. And my work has spanned all kinds of things from working in a small newspaper as a journalist to going on to become a writer for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, representing the non-game wildlife and the wildlife viewing programs, then on to eventually working on my own as a writer. And uh, I would say the culmination of my career, or at least another starting point in my career, has been publishing this book, Halcyon Journey in Search of the Belt of Kingfisher, which took me more than a decade, really, to research and write. So quickly, natural history, for all those who do not know this bird. The belted kingfisher in North America is our one species of kingfisher, except when you go down to the border where you could run into the ringed kingfisher, the closest relative, a bigger bird on the border of Mexico, and maybe the little green kingfisher as well. People are often surprised that there are about 120 species of kingfishers in the world. We have the one in North America mostly, but I find the belted kingfisher so compelling. I was a bit startled that my book was the only, and still is the only, book about this bird that has many fans, And I have found, as I've gone on tour with my book and presentation. So I've been overwhelmed with what other people know about kingfishers, So I'm learning constantly. So the quick story of them is they're about the size of a blue jay, except they are very different. They'll have a crest but have a little bit bigger head in proportion to the rest of the body and a dagger beak for fishing and tiny little feet and a short tail. You won't find them hopping around the yard like a robin. In fact, you won't find them unless you live by a stream or a creek. But what I love about the kingfisher is that you will find this bird across all the states of In the United States and Canada, and in cities and towns and countrysides, wild places, wherever they can find uh, water, fish, and a nesting spot. There are several remarkable things about the Belted Kingfisher, and one of them is that they do not build a stick nest, but nest in an earthen burrow deep in a bank. And the male and the female together excavate this long tunnel that can be three, four, five, six, seven, eight feet long. And, and then at the end is where they hollow out their little football-sized burrow, and that's where the female will lay her five to eight eggs. So here's year. Really, the highlight begins for them in the breeding season. In the spring, when they are courting, mating, and digging a new nest or remodeling an old one. Kingfishers are called seasonally monogamous, so they are not mates for life, though I believe sometimes they stay together several seasons. So then there's a lot of activity after the inactivity, it seems for us, of incubation time. But once the male and female start feeding the chicks fish that they're coming and going into the burrow at remarkable rates. And it's a difficult thing to watch, actually. Not that many people get to see this. So it took me a while. But anyway, they eventually, these chicks will fledge, fly out of their lip of their nest hole into the big wide world. And they have to learn to fish pretty much on their own. They get a little help in the beginning with the parents feeding them. Sometimes you'll see several kingfishers together. Most of the time you won't because kingfishers are territorial wary they really only are together as a pair during the breeding season but you'll see them together sometimes in aerial chases and that's when they're negotiating their territories over fishing so in the winter time in the northern states all the kingfishers have to go south because of the iced over waters but there's a big swath of our country where kingfishers are there year-round however females will migrate especially from the northern states and they can go as far as the tip of South America but not the males and then they come back in time for the next year.
0: I love (laughs) knowing that the females venture so much farther than the males that's very exciting for some reason (laughs) and you speak a lot about the female belted kingfishers in the book. But before we get to that particular topic, I wanted to come back to their nest building. You made a point of saying they don't build stick nests. They build into the banks of streams. And could you talk a little bit about that? Because you and friends co-discovered particular part of this nest building behavior and i'd love for you to share that with listeners
1: oh i'd be happy to so they do nest also in addition to stream banks they they will nest where there's other kinds of banks near i've seen the banks by the way by the coast and sandstone but it just has to be some kind of soil that's diggable but it won't collapse on them so it's definitely a tricky Thing for them to find the correct kind of bank for their nesting. But what I did find with my friends, Lisa and Paul Hendricks, who are wonderful naturalists, who also love the kingfisher in Missoula, this was after a few seasons of watching the birds, you think you start to know what they're doing. But this one day, we watched from about 100 yards away through a spotting scope and could see the male and the female Taking turns flying from about 15 feet away from this pretty steep bank, and they would just go head first and ram their beaks one at a time into the bank and to try to make a hole. And this was something called aerial ramming, which had never been documented for belted kingfishers before. There's been a few others in the world that do this. So we watched this behavior for three mornings in a row, and we were. We're not really thinking about this being a new discovery. We're just worried about the birds at the time. We were thinking concussions, you know? So, and it was just amazing the persistence of the birds. And they finally made a little dent and a pocket in the bank. And then they could grab on with their tiny feet and get their beaks in there. And then they start digging with their little feet. So they were digging with their little feet and they finally got going. And then, voila, they chose another nest hole and they didn't nest there. But the exciting part of that is that. We did discover something that hadn't been recorded before. And I think not only did I feel exuberant about that, as we all did, but that it just reminded me that how much there is to notice, discover, and find in nature for those who watch and pay attention. How important it is also to document what you're doing. I think that's the value of community science or citizen science too, to share that. So I think. The value of a new discovery, one is to show that birds are quite intelligent and they're different from each other. They're individuals. So what you read in a textbook or online or on your all about birds gives you a certain view of, of birds. But when you go out yourself and open your eyes and notice, you're constantly seeing things that aren't actually in the books, you know. So I found that multiple times. It was actually maybe not the only discovery. It's the one that we, my friend Paul Hendricks, particularly as a zoologist, led the way and doing the research it took to write that into a
0: note in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology. Your observation that it's really important to make observations um, certainly in your case, you've written the only book on the belted kingfisher, and you sounded surprised when you made that statement. Why do you think you're the first and still the only person to have written about this bird? Well, one reason could be
1: is that the kingfishers are very difficult to study, And I was so excited when I decided to follow the kingfisher in my own backyard stream uh, close by. And, you know, I love the idea that the kingfisher is the halcyon bird, which is the name of my book, Halcyon Journey, because the noun halcyon means kingfisher and it's connected to a Greek myth of transformation, peaceful, calm days. So I was like, oh, it's going to be great following this bird, but it turns out they're very hard to follow. They're very wily, skittish, frustrating. So that could be one reason why there hasn't been a book about them. One of my inspirations for writing, going deep into a bird like this, was a book called Return of the Osprey by David Gessner. And he's a wonderful writer. And he had chased these ospreys around Cape Cod for a season and wrote a book about it. And I became entranced by that idea. When I chose the kingfisher, I did know, yes, no, there has been no book about this bird, but I was worried. I took so long to come to the conclusion of writing, researching, writing this book. I thought surely somebody would, because I do know, despite how difficult they are to follow, They are spirit birds for all kinds of people I've met. They're so meaningful to people who are on the water, whether they're fishing or boating or daydreaming. There's something about their rattling call that's just so vibrant and exciting. So the more I've gone out to meet people who love Kingfishers, the more amazed in some ways that my book is the first one. So I hope there will be another one. Are you able to
0: mimic that
1: rattle? I want to give this question to you, actually, because here's my question for you, Georgia. Can you roll your R's? <laughs> See, you are the one who can make the Kingfisher sound because <laughs> I cannot roll my R's. And I think that's the best way. You know, if you did that a little louder, you're going you're gonna to have the Kingfisher. <laughs> It's getting good, <laughs> maybe a little higher, but it's because the best I can do is like <laughs> And the sound of a kingfisher varies. If The more you are around kingfishers, the more you notice their language is complex. They may not be warblers and thrushes with big songs. They're very chatty birds for being loners. If you watch a kingfisher alone fishing, Looking down at the water, there's often this like they're just having a conversation with themselves. But when they're alarmed, the sound is loud, fierce. <laughs> so it's good to pay attention. I never got tired of trying to write what it sounded like. I still don't think I have it quite dialed in.
0: I can hear my own cat kingfisher meowling. <laughs> You mentioned that you've met a lot of people who feel deeply connected to the Kingfisher. And in the book, you include a few stories about the place of the Kingfisher in Indigenous cultures in North America. Would you mind sharing one that's deeply meaningful to you?
1: Sure. I very much wanted to honor the Indigenous peoples in this book and I started with thinking about what are the names for the Kingfisher and other, and the tribal languages. And I fell in love with the ones that I learned, like the Salish name is Tishlis. The Salish people are the ones who live in the Montana, Missoula homeland area where much of my book takes place. But I love the way that the Salish word connects to me to this onomatopoeia almost of the bird in place in water. So when I delved into the myths, I wanted to see all kinds of them and and what came up for me. And some were very humorous, some were why stories. But the one that I loved the most is the Arakara people's origin story in Upper Missouri. And in that one, the people were going together to another world and they needed some help along the way and three different birds helped them so the kingfisher laid a great beak across a big chasm so the people could cross over the chasm on the beak of the kingfisher these are very large birds and the loon parted the lake waters and an owl cleared a thorny forest so the people every time they were helped by a bird could make a choice they could continue on the journey or turn into the bird that had helped them. So as somebody who has always loved the idea of turning into a bird, that was appealing. And also this idea of the Kingfisher as a helper Mm -hmm. and bridging these chasms. I think of that in our world today, how divided and separated we are and we need something like the Kingfisher, I think,
0: to bridge that. I love that story. And I love the way that you link it to our current situation. Bridges are always really helpful, right? For so many reasons, and not just physical bridges that connect our bodies, but social bridges that help us get to know each other and relate to each other.
1: Exactly. And, you know, I think there's a wonderful common language in a passion for birds. And I've found that to be true, that can cross politics and so many divisions. And I've even had that experience in my neighborhood, you know, so with someone who we may have vastly different politics, but we both were pretty darn excited about this white headed woodpecker that came to our yard and we'd call each other back and forth whenever the woodpecker arrived, you know? And so I think, Birds, all birds, are wonderful bridges for people to come together.
0: I want to go back to the sound of the Belted Kingfisher. You spend a lot of time on Rattlesnake Creek. And you write about, it's sort of like a beautiful coincidence that you are observing belted kingfishers on Rattlesnake Creek because of the, I don't know, the similarity with the rattle and the rattle the Kingfisher makes. And I'd love to hear more about that. I thought so too. For years, I had lived close
1: to Rattlesnake Creek without making that connection so much and always wondered about the name because really they're maybe a rattlesnake up there. I'm not sure. Not, But like I said in the book, it could have something to do about the sound of the creek and the wind of the creek. But yes, I'd love to get people to envision where my journey takes place, my quest, this stream of mine. And Rattlesnake Creek starts in high headwaters, about 8,000 feet up. In the wilderness the rattlesnake wilderness and then flows down gradually has more streams comes together goes 22 miles into the confluence with the clark fork river in missoula montana which is a college town of about 60,000 people. And as the creek flows down, it comes out of this Rattlesnake National Recreation Area, which is an amazing place, 60,000 acres right on the edge of this town. And then it goes into this valley that's lined by Mount Jumbo on the east and the north hills on the west. And my house was in that valley with several, I was part of a neighborhoods. And the creek itself is lined by forests, by ponderosa pine and douglas fir and western larch, cottonwoods, alders, and then wonderful, beautiful bushes, mock orange and willow and red osier dogwood. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous stream. And one of the most incredible things about the Rattlesnake Creek are the colors of the stones on the bottom of the creek, because it's a very clear creek flowing down from this wilderness. So The colors, I sometimes describe them like a harvest scene, you know, like eggplants and pumpkins, things like that of your garden. Just a beautiful palette. Oh, and also it's a critical creek for for some native fish, for cutthroat and trout and bull trout, which are struggling a bit in the West because of warming waters. So it's definitely a place of refuge. It has some compromised sections for sure as it enters into town where it's been straightened. And there was a little dam for water. used to be the water supply for Missoula, but isn't anymore. And that actually is an interesting spot on the creek because that's where the young kingfishers would learn to fish and the parents seemed to bring them there on purpose. So it was an easy place to always find the young ones. But this is a good thing, the town, the city of Missoula bought their own water supply from a private company, Mountain Water Dam, and they took out the dam. And they are letting, you know, the rewilding happen and they planted willows. And it's, but the kingfishers had to get used to it and they weren't anywhere around. I think they missed a season at least because of all the construction of the renewal. And now, you know, it's like, well, they'll find. They've always found other places, but it makes you realize how important like beaver ponds are and natural little ponds as part of creeks for for these birds too. So, I hope that gives a sense of Rattlesnake Creek.
0: Yeah. So, you think it was the sort of the stillness of the water that made it easier for younger kingfishers to learn how to fish.
1: Sure, because, you know, in those little deep standing water, you know, they you, you can see the fish and versus Rattlesnake Creek usually is flowing pretty quickly along. And so you find little pools and eddies and things, but it's, it's trickier fishing for them. So they do no matter what, and they definitely like to be able to see their prey, but... It is funny watching young kingfishers learn to fish because I don't think the parents teach them much. You know, they just have to figure it out. So there's belly flops and crash landings and they're a little dopey. but, uh, But they have to figure it out pretty quickly in order to survive.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of it seems like it could be very comedic, comedic moments watching them. And kingfishers in general have a comedic side.
1: There's something about that two-part crust that's a little bit disheveled and tasseled. And, you know, I'm often smiling in the presence of a kingfisher.
0: Well, certainly when you were describing the landscape of the creek, you were beaming. How did you find your love of nature? You wrote some about your father in the book and his connection to conservation were those the seeds uh, for your own love of the environment? Absolutely. Yes. I was so fortunate to grow up with
1: parents who valued being out in nature and camping and, and the outdoors. And my father, in particular, was in the National Park Service through his his moves and things we were able to live in pretty spectacular places, along with some that weren't. You know, that's the nature of moving around. But, Personally, my dad was an incredible birder, which I am not, by the way. I I try, but he could really hear so many warblers and identify them by their song and vireos. So I grew up with him with binoculars, with his golden guide, taking us, always listening, pointing things out. So yes, I definitely was influenced very much by
0: my father. And it sounds like, being outside teaches, I suppose, uh, you know, there's a dedication to observation and just a dedication to being in the place to see and hear what there is around. I think of the fact that your study of the Belted Kingfishers took seven years, which is a long time. I mean, that you could have gotten a PhD in like <laughs> ornithology, and so I'm curious if at the outset of the project you knew that you would dedicate so many years to it, or you, did you just become immersed and just kind of went along?
1: Definitely the latter.
0: Okay, definitely
1: <laughs> became immersed as I went along, and what I discovered was in the first season was particularly intense, and you know. It's possible I could have written a book about that because I did finally find a pair of kingfishes. I was able to watch them all the way. But still, I was so curious. There was so much I wanted to know, so much I'd missed the first season. So I didn't want to stop. I loved the quest. So yes, one season became two, became three. four.
0: <laughs> yes. Another thing about your studies, you name two of the belted Kingfishers and house and I don't know how to pronounce the other one CX CX. Why did you feel compelled to name them and what did naming them do in terms of your relationship with those birds?
1: Well I became so familiar with them uh, they had to have some names to me you know I, I was of course I did but then I felt a little bit like oh I named them after Greek the Greek myth you know, which is the Halcyon and CX myth of kingfishers. And here I was in this homeland of the Salish. But on the other hand, I thought, oh, well, I love that myth. And now I have these birds to follow and watch. So I felt a little bit like this part of me is like, I'm not going to be anthropomorphic about this. I'm not going to give them attributes that are human. But I did like having names for them. And it helped me write about them, think about them, know them as individuals and then when I was noticing the pair of the second season coming back I could see some similarities that made me think you know I think these are the same birds without banding the Kingfishers, which this was a very passive observation. It's impossible to know exactly whether they're the same. But I know we haven't talked yet about the female being more colorful than the male in her red belt, But the halcyon, the beginning of the the book that I think came back several years, had a distinctive belt that did not quite meet in the middle of her chest. So there were things about her and her behavior, too, that made me think, oh she's she's still the same bird.
0: well, so let's talk about a female belted kingfisher. And I have bookmarked in your book a couple of pages. It's in the Red Belt Mystery, Chapter 8. Starting around page 137, you talk about ornamental plumage, you talk about pigments, you write about microstructures. And then on page 138, you ask the question, Could a female's belt be her superpower? And then on page 140, which concludes the chapter, the last paragraph, you write, Coming home, I embodied the migratory female belted Kingfisher, flying north with my newfound strength and wisdom, gained from my flight away without a mate. Coming home, I carried my father's steadfast belief in me, Pursuing the red belt mystery, I chased down a few female powers of my own, like independence, fortitude, and even bravery. Yeah, so let's talk about the female belted kingfisher and how you I suppose found your own superpowers by studying this the female of the species. Well, thank you for that question.
1: Yes, sometimes I like to call her the Queen Fisher. We could rename her, you know, you name them all Queen Fishers. Yes. Instead of the King Fisher.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure.
1: <laughs> I definitely was so curious about why she was more colorful than the male. And I thought, too, that it was an odd thing maybe that the description of this phenomena of the female being more colorful than the male, which is so rare in the bird world, is called something strange, reverse sexual dimorphism. And I thought, well, really, that's if you're thinking from the male perspective, isn't it? You know, reverse of the male, you know, versus like, this is her. This is who she is. There's something about that boldness of her beautiful reddish belt. And I noticed too often the way there were females who would be vying with each other for the nesting bank male. And the there were times when I watched the male looking like, you know, he was definitely the object and they were the subject, you know, and like they're going to decide, you know, who's, who's going to work it out to be with him. It's not his choice. But there were so many things just I would say about both the female and the male that gave me this sense of strength and independence. Yes, I love the female was the one who could migrate for miles away from the male and without her mate and be alone and be okay, which I enjoyed doing. And it was a time in my life when I needed to do that. But I also like just so many attributes of the Kingfisher, that there's this hovering above places this ability to stay still in a storm in a maelstrom in a way, and then to take this absolutely trusting headfirst fall. You think about like a bald eagle or osprey, they're just using their talons, right? To grab a fish, but to actually go headfirst into the creek, you know, is that takes some real ability to just let go. And I was like, I wonder if I can ever master that in my life. So The more I watched the skills and the talents and the flight and the beauty, I was gaining some of my own confidence. Not that I didn't have confidence, but I was learning so much from the Kingfisher that became important in my personal life
0: as well. You talk about finding that comfort in being alone. And I noticed for your study, you did it. A lot of times with friends so you didn't do this sort of traditional you know solo naturalist expedition in the wild you had companions and i would like to know what that meant for you as well as your friends to involve them in this journey or quest as the word you used earlier
1: yes thanks for that question i We'll say I did both. You know, I I had my time alone, which I really valued. And I have lots of deep, wonderful memories of being alone on the creek. However, the times where I was together with my friends, Lisa and Paul, well, for one thing, there's just something wonderful, you know, when you can share your enthusiasm. And I talk about this one time with Lisa, particularly, who was a, a fifth grade teacher, and she and I would take turns going to the blinds so we wouldn't miss our time watching the Kingfisher because we couldn't be there all the time. And we'd leave little notes for each other. We just felt our kinship and our bond grow. As, and it's still that today. You know, she and Paul, I've mo- I moved, but they are still watching the Kingfishers on Rattlesnake Creek to this day. And we report in. My son lives in Missoula. So I go over. And. We go back to these places too. So, I suppose there is always something joyful about sharing with another person what you're experiencing in nature. And at the same time, there's real
0: value in being alone too. So, I'm an advocate of both. Which brings me back to another place in the book earlier on on page 92 How much is life like? Brownian motion, a physics term for the erratic and random movement of particles as they collide with molecules in a fluid. By circling this one tight place on the planet, I had experienced wonders by being open to all that is random and erratic. Everywhere I sensed the presence of kingfishers, napping, perching, fishing, flying, hovering and autographing Rattlesnake Creek. What would you say to folks about devoting time to a place, to a creature? I think sometimes it's really helpful to have a
1: guide to the complexity of the world around you and a reason that brings you back again and again. Before... I chose the kingfisher to follow on Rattlesnake Creek. I had spent a lot of time there, but it was only when I chose this bird to follow that I was out there in times I wouldn't have chosen otherwise, you know, in snowstorms and downpours and in the dark and, and in the heat, whatever time. And by being out at those times, always aware of the kingfisher, I became so much more connected to this wild neighborhood of all of the creatures that lived along Rattlesnake Creek. And so I find for other people, I would recommend that whatever appeals to you that might draw you, there's there's a value to being both laser focused on something that you're excited about and yet very open to the world around you. So I talk also in the book about this idea of close and wide focus uh, that I learned from a naturalist who studied small insects all the time. But, you know, is this idea of really looking at the details of what's around you. And when I would sit waiting for the kingfisher, which wasn't always easy for me because I was a runner and liked to move a lot, so kingfisher could force me to stay still and at the time, I would could start noticing, yeah, what, what different kinds of insects and bees and butterflies are coming to to this plant. And, you know, while I'm quiet, all of a sudden, this rough grouse is displaying on a log next to me. And I would get to know that and look for that. And I became aware, too, of where, certain, where the warbling vireo nests were, so much that I became attuned to by being out there. And I find that's an incredible value of coming to know a place is to be open and aware to your surroundings. And if it takes some species like the kingfisher to bring you there, I think that's a good thing. I would love to share one little little part of the book in that where I talk about sitting by the creek, and you know, it's it's a warm. September afternoon and you know so I'm wearing shorts and just stretching out on the edge of the creek and just not really looking for kingfishers, just being wanting to be there and Mm. all of a sudden this this beautiful chocolate bird mink just ripples right over my bare
0: legs and that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been out there. Well, you know, you have close encounters with the Kingfishers. You talk about buying the tent blind. And I had to look that up online to see what that looks like. And, you know, you had this visual connection with the Kingfishers because they sensed your presence and you realized that they could see you. They were very much aware of you. You know, what was it like in that moment emotionally, those moments where it was clear that you knew each other were nearby?
1: Yes, being in that blind and being so aware that the birds were aware of me just always had me breathless. I had to remind myself to breathe sometimes, especially when there were these moments of great activity when the male and female were flying back and forth with fish to feed their young, but they just never got used to me. I mean, they knew the blind was there. They knew something was different. And I had to be extremely careful. You know, you just like, even lifting your binoculars could get them to, they're looking straight at you. But there is something about that connection that you're having with another form of life than your own. in this one-on-one moment, even if it's feeling like, oh, they're disturbed, I better not disturb them. We're still connected in this way that is powerful, that I think we're all looking for in life. So many of us, so much of our lives is not connected directly with birds or other kinds of animals. So when we can have those moments of connection, it brings us closer and it also reminds us of how much we are all part of this planet and our future is interlinked. So we cannot be living as if the rest of the species
0: don't matter. How changed are you by this experience? Because you started out very much an environmentalist, and naturalist. You, you know, had already drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Now that you're on the other side of it and looking back, can you see ways in which you've changed?
1: Yes, definitely. For one thing, when I moved to Oregon, back to Oregon with kind of these newfound wings and having the Kingfisher still as my guide wherever I went, I felt empowered to take on some different kinds of environmental work than I'd been doing volunteering in in Montana. I've become very engaged in campaigns to save wildlands and forests and birds. And I, I think as a writer, I am more confident in my abilities but I'm also there's this part of me too that's like can I really live up to this can I write another book there will be another book there will never be another book like this one but I have some new goals for myself as a writer because of what I was able to do with with Halcyon Journey I think one of the things that has been so rewarding for me whether I ever get anything else written or not When uh, I hope I do another book I'm working on it but it's just the connections I've made with the people who I have brought my book to and presentations and tours and and who have corresponded with me and like you is so rewarding I guess maybe what's changed partly is this knowledge that I have my words, my book has made a difference with people. My greatest hope was to both honor this bird that's just so incredibly magnificent to me. And also that sharing this healing connection of nature nearby, wherever wherever you live, could resonate with people. I think, too, the parts of my book that had to do with memoir and loss of my father and healing from that has reached people too. So I suppose I'm changed in, in my gratitude, growing gratitude for all these good, wonderful people I'm meeting
0: through the Kingfisher. Thank you. I have two more questions for you. One of which is from a listener of the blog and someone who read your book and told me about your book. And Michelle is curious about the art in the book. And if you could talk about the process of the art, like choosing the artist, how did all that all happen? For folks who haven't read this book, I mean, the art is so evocative of the bird. It really does feel like a intimate part of the book. So it's not just simply illustrating the book, but it's its own text within the book.
1: Well, the artist Ram Popish would be delighted to hear that. And I too feel so honored that his lovely sketches and artwork throughout this book bring my words to life. And so I have known Ram Popish. He lives in Newport, Oregon. One of the other hats I wear is I'm an interpretive writer. I write wayside exhibits. And Ram and I have worked together. We did a whole series for the Oregon Islands National Wildlife Refuge all along the coast of Oregon. And he has beautiful, colorful artwork throughout. He's both a bird biologist and a and a lively artist. So I knew right away when I thought about this book that I wanted him to be the illustrator. And he was excited about it. He came up with some ideas. And I think it has worked. you know, you could, could have been a book where you had color photos. We have, there's a beautiful color photo of the female on the front a cover which I do love and I did get to choose. But Ram and I went back and forth. I I gave him suggestions. I was hoping to have, you know, one illustration per chapter and a map. I sent him many photos of Rattlesnake Creek and kingfishers and fortunately he had also been to that area himself. So he would take what I sent him and come up with his own way you know, sometimes every now and then we'd be, oh no, not quite this, you know, and we'd go back and forth. I would just be so amazed by his creativity. Like I love that on the map he made the compass with the kingfisher, you know, pointing slightly north, and I ended up, you know, having that in my book, you know. Uh, so his artwork came at the sort of end of my editing of the book, you know, while after it had been accepted by Oregon State University Press and I do want to give them a plug too because they were a wonderful press to work with and I had great experience with their staff and they they set me up with a a, a copy editor who was to die for she did such a good job but yes yeah, so rom kind of was in at the very end of the book but I was influenced and able to to change a little add a little bit of things into the writing based on on the artwork he did.
0: Yeah, they are really lovely. It's nice to, you know, sort of, you see each piece and then you read a chapter and the complementarity is really quite astounding. I'd like to close our conversation with something else you've written in the book. I told you that I love reading acknowledgements. It's often the first thing I read in the book. And the last line in your acknowledgement reads, the final acknowledgement must go to every Kingfisher in the one sweet world. Did you write this sentence at the very end after writing everything? Or did you know that you were going to include this last line to cap off the book?
1: Yeah, nobody has ever asked me that question before. I I love it. So, no, I I did have that in mind. And the One Sweet World actually comes from the Dave Matthews song, Mm. if you know One Sweet World. And there's this stanza, you know, that's One Sweet World, around the stars spinning, One Sweet World, and in her breath we're swimming, and in here we will rest in peace. Mm. So, you know, the Halcyon bird bird of peace. And there's this evocative image. So I just loved that. And I thought of the kingfisher as my guiding light and the, the bird I wanted to honor in this one sweet world. So yes, I actually think I had that
0: line in mind for a long time. Well, thank you so much, Marina. I hope we can all be so lucky to find our guiding bird in our One Sweet World. It was lovely to talk with you.
1: Well, thank you. And could I ask you one last question?
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Do you have that bird in your life or a bird that you particularly
0: love of many? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I have a top three, but I would then say of the three, it is the yellow-bellied sapsucker. Oh, And the female with the black crown is, I think, just this for me, the sweetest of the birds. Yeah. Yellow-bellied sapsucker. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. for tuning in to this episode of your Bird story like share subscribe and we'll see you back here next month